Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London, you just never know. This week we come to you from Santa Barbara, California. When we talk about a place like Santa Barbara, there's so many different things that people imagine that are A, mythological, um, or they fantasize, or they just drive 90 miles up the coast from Los Angeles and they realize it's all true. And uh, joining me now is somebody who knows a little bit about that. She's a journalist and author of a number of books, How to Santa Barbara, and I love this, the Society Ladies' Guide on How to Santa Barbara. You have to pronounce it just like that. Um, and the most recent book, Old Spanish Days, Santa Barbara History Through Public Art. And her name, Erin Graffy. how are you? Hey, Peter, great to be with you this morning. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because the only time you hear about Santa Barbara usually, okay, mm-hmm. as either, you know, Oprah's in town <laughs> or... You know, on a sadder note, you know, what about the effects of the oil spill that was not even anywhere near here? Yeah. It was, yeah. It was you know, even north of Goleta. That's um, correct. Um, and I'm here to tell you that, that, you know, I'm looking out the window here and the coastline looks just great. How long have you been in Santa Barbara? Well, since I was a little two by four. <laughs> so a long time. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> so you've seen a lot of the change. Yes, yes. But also, I mean, when you think about all that change, you also need to preserve it. You know, all, yes. that, all that heritage. Santa Barbara's pretty darn good at that. And judging from your book about public art, where do you see the public art? You know, uh, the public art that was based on our history here, our old Spanish days. Of course, we're having our old Spanish days fiesta, week-long celebration coming up in a couple of weeks. And this was the Rancho period of California. And what's really... What was, what was that period? Uh, about, say, 1828 uh, to about 1862, uh, 63, when the drought killed off all the cattle. And isn't it, isn't it ironic that we're right in the middle of a big drought yeah, now? You got it. Yeah, <laughs> you got it. I know. Yeah, so the, the fun thing about Santa Barbara, I shouldn't say fun. I think it's really remarkably beautiful, and I've traveled all over the world. Um, my sister has certainly traveled all over the world, and every time she comes home here, she just remarks on how beautiful the city is. And in addition to the architecture, you're looking on the walls, 
and you're seeing these fantastic tile murals, these fantastic paintings, even in the museums that are free and open to the public, these marvelous, uh, you know, listed artists doing paintings, renderings, reference to this old Spanish days, rancho period, time period of California. Well, you know, you mentioned the architecture. I think it's to Santa Barbara's great credit that you are not high-rise. Mm-hmm. You've maintained limits. Uh, you've maintained a certain, without being boring or predictable, a certain architectural consistency. Yes, and I think it's so lovely. One of the things I love to do, Peter, is when I'm off in a boat and you look up State Street and you see when State Street was rebuilt after the earthquake in the Spanish style. and it looks Which earthquake? Like the Great Earthquake of 1925, June 29th. And, um, I have to ask that question because I survived the Great Earthquake of 1994. Oh, <laughs> That wasn't as great an earthquake, I'm sure. It was if you were in Los Angeles, I'll tell you. (laughs) Santa Barbara always thinks that we're the first or the worst of whatever happened, you know, that (laughs) this was the earthquake. Okay, San Francisco beat us in 1904, but the earthquake took down our downtown, and when they rebuilt, they said, let's rebuild with a certain architectural standard, and it was these beautiful Spanish-style buildings, white stucco walls, red tile roof, so that when you are down at the wharf, in a boat, and you look up Santa Barbara, you can see where the main street is because that business street, State Street, is all white. It's the great white way of Santa Barbara. And that's also where you have the film festival, too. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. So it's kind of unique. Also, our biggest festivals here are in the most beautiful public spots in Santa Barbara. You know, sometimes a festival, you know, you got to go to some way-off auditorium or something. But uh, really, just the buildings here are beautiful, and our festivals take place in the most beautiful places. And if you think of how, how small the, this particular county is, when you're, when you're looking at it in, in its overall size, um, it is, to a certain extent, manageable, walkable. Um, you know, I like to just walk the streets. Well, I won't tell people that you are a streetwalker after all this time, Peter. Oh, listen, it wouldn't be the first time. (laughs) No, but you you know what I'm saying. That's right. That's right. You can get out of your car. You can move around. You can go to places. You don't have to keep hopping in and out. You just leave your car and go out for a couple of hours exploring all over just just the downtown area, let alone the other areas, the water sports down at the ocean, you know, backpacking or hiking up in the national forest. When we come back, I want to talk about the museums because... There are a lot of them that are not readily apparent. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you got to know where they are, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> I found one here. The last time I was up here about a month ago, I was walking down by the by the pier, and right across the from from the from the I call it the highway. It's it's basically a two lane highway. Uh, there was this funky little museum of surfing. Oh yes, yes with, yes, with an old yes. Corvette parked out in the front. <laughs> Am I right? That's right. That's and, right. And it was like I, I only want to ask one question: Does the car run? And, hmm. and, and you know what? I, nobody can answer that question. But, hmm. but it was sitting out there like with the surfboard on the back. You know, the, the top was down, ready to go. But the interesting thing is next door to that guy, you have these little galleries that are mom and pop. And, and, and everything sh- sold on consignment. I, I, yes, I bought stuff. I have to admit it. I bought stuff. That's neat stuff down there. Very nice. Stuff. Cool finds. Yeah. Stay with me. Aaron Graffy, the author of the most recent book, Old Spanish Days, Santa Barbara History, through public art. When we come back, we're going to talk about the museums you didn't know about, but should. Back with more of Peter Greenberg Worldwide from Santa Barbara, right after this. <music> speaking with Aaron Graffy, the author of numerous books, but the one I want to talk about before we even get to the museums is How to Santa Barbara. <laughs> or, or, or there's the How to Santa Barbara, the advanced course. Oh, and actually, there's a third volume, Peter. Oh, no, don't do this to me. What is yes, it called? it's also How to Santa Barbara, Guide to Protocol. Because, you know, we're a very uh, unique city, and you need a guide to protocol so that you won't do strange things like... Uh, uh, what, what, should, what should you not do in Santa Barbara? You should not honk. Well, but you could say that about Cleveland. Um, but everybody honks. But just in Santa Barbara, you know, it's considered rude. So if, you know, somebody honks loudly on State Street, everybody in the second story will be leaning out the window going, what's going on? What's going on? <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. Um, and the other th- big thing, big thing, big thing. So basically there are not a lot of bumper stickers that say honk if you like Santa Barbara. <laughs> That's right. And the other one is you do not pay attention to movie stars. Explain. You, you do not, because here the length uh, length of residence is the real uh, coup de grace. So this is, you know, you're, it's not power and position. Um, it's length of residence. And if you're just a newcomer and you're a movie you star. Mean like, like the newcomer Oprah Winfrey? Yeah, so what? <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay. So we love her and respect her for the things that she does for the community. But for most of the movie stars, actually, they move here because we won't pay any attention to them. Now, if you go out to yeah, lunch... Now, by the way, there's an old uh, routine that was done by Jack Benny on the old Jack Benny show where Bob Hope comes to visit him, and they both have a week off. And they go, we should go on vacation. And they go, yeah, so let's go down and talk to a travel agent. So they go down to a travel agent, and the travel agent says, where do you want to go? And he says, well, we're big stars. We're huge stars. We're box office sensations. <laughs> we want you to tell us to take us and send us somewhere where nobody knows us because we don't want to be bothered. So the travel agent took up to their word, sent them to someplace like Armpit, Kansas, and there they are. They lasted 22 minutes because nobody knew them. It was exactly the opposite. So be careful what you say, right? No, I think a great deal of the celebrities actually moved to Santa Barbara because they know that they, will, they can go below the radar. For instance, if you went out to lunch today and you saw a movie star that lives here and was eating lunch, no self-respecting Santa Barbara is going to, barbarian is going to go up to the movie star and ask for the autograph. If you see anybody doing that, we're all diving underneath the table and going, oh, my God, a tourist, a tourist. No, 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 don't do that. So um, that's, that's okay. kind of our drink here. Okay, so what's the thing that you should always do here? Uh, respect people who've been here for a long time. Be interested in history. You know, this, this whole town just oozes history all over the place. Whether or not you thought you were, quote, a historian, you, you'll just find it. All right, so let's segue right that to the thing we left off in, in the last segment, which is all the museums you didn't know about. What's the most interesting museum here for you? Um, hmm, gosh, that's a really good question. One that's not per se a museum, but feels like a museum that's just absolutely stunning is the courthouse. The courthouse looks like a centuries-old Spanish castle. It is just mind-boggling beautiful, and it was built uh, around 19, was it 1929. So it wasn't an old, old you know, building to begin with that's also very interesting. But it has fantastic artwork in there, um, a fantastic mural room. With a, again, a very important artist who painted the murals there. And the docents will take you through a lot of information that takes place in and about the courthouse. Not just, you know, here's where the judge sits kind of thing, but the, uh, the allusions to other parts of our history that are there. Are there any sort of monuments to the trains? Well, our, our, our depot downtown is yeah. <laughs> certainly one of them, and it has also great artwork, by the way. At the depot? At the depot. There's also a great depot that's in Goleta, and they talk about the history of trains and the, the usefulness of all that, so there, there's another place to stop. But what I like about Santa Barbara is if you stay in the downtown area, and that includes everything from a local downtown hotel up to the Fest Parker or whatever, you're going to hear the train. Yes, yes. Well, that's a kind of a fun thing. So, yeah. okay. So you have this very wealthy neighborhood, Montecito, part of Santa Barbara. Uh, it's not part of the city, but just separate. And here you have these cabillion dollar estates <laughs> right along where the trains were. Because when the trains came through, they had to put them along the coastline where people back a century ago thought, well, it's foggy and cold on the coastline. And of course, this is prime property, but that's where the train goes. So. <laughs> When I had my little condo in Carpinteria, it was, yeah, right within earshot of the, uh, of the trains. Hello? Uh, this is your captain speaking. There is absolutely no cause for alarm. Get your motor running. Head out on the highway. Looking for adventure. You know, most people who come up to Santa Barbara are not really aware of the history of the place. They're, they're aware certainly of the beauty of the place, but not necessarily the history of the place. And my next, my next guest, I was about to say my next author, but that qualifies. Yes, it does. Uh, it certainly does. Is the author of Street Names of Santa Barbara, Historic Santa Barbara, and, of course, Santa Barbara Then and Now, his name, Neil Graffy. Hey, Neil, how are you? Very good. Thanks for having me today. I mean, I've been coming up to Santa Barbara since 1971, and um, it was always a fun place to come to. Uh, I had no idea of the real history of it, except that it was, you know, part of the Mission Trail, um, if you go along the whole California coast. I remember when I first came up in 1971, I wanted to see Santa Barbara because of all the anti-war riots a couple of years earlier with Isla Vista and B of A and all that stuff. Yeah, who would think such a small little place on the California coast would have so much history? And that's what fascinates me about Santa Barbara, is you can't throw a stick without hitting history around this place, and it's 
you know, we don't have a great port. We don't have great roads, you know, going back into the 1700s, 1800s. Some may say even today we don't. But for such a small place, we've just had so much history passed through here and so many important people doing things that have a, on a national level out of Little Santa Barbara. You mentioned the roads. Let's not forget the trains because one of the things that is still to me so charming about, about Santa Barbara is when the train comes by, you hear it. Yes, you do. And the whole town, I had a friend who used to work with trains, and he said he could tell from the sound of the horn where they were blasting it, which engineer was on board. They had each, like a trolley car ringer up in San Francisco. You know, there's a certain measure that these guys would have. Well, train travel took a long time to get to Santa Barbara. They argued over it for nearly 20 years before the train finally came through, and that was in 1887. And even then, it still wasn't a through train. It wasn't until 1901 that we had a coastal line that took us all the way from San Francisco to Los Angeles. And it's still in existence today. Still in existence. And one of the great quotes I heard about Santa Barbara was this woman said that she was so used to taking train travel, and as you pulled into a town, you just saw you know, the junkyards and the debris. And she said, pulling into Santa Barbara, it was beautiful from every direction. And she thought this was the place to be. Well, now you've given me my perfect segue because how could you have any more beautiful an airport than your airport here? Because it's it's a boutique. Uh, I remember the older airport before you got jetways. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> where I think the re- the waiting room was like one small wooden stickly chair. And, and you, you sort of like, wait, this is it? Yeah. But what people don't realize about the airport, you have very long runways. I mean, you can land some very big planes there. Uh, but at the same time, it is a very small, petite, uh, sort of a precious airport. I would agree with that. And you're right about that runway. Some of your listeners may remember the Super Guppy planes back in the 1970s. The big cargo planes. Big cargo planes for taking the NASA spacecraft. And here they were built in Santa Barbara, and they had to get it off that Little runway, you know, it looks little compared to that plane, but oh, sure. they got those things off the ground and in the air. Well, every time I land at the airport, and I did that yesterday, I always look at one of the hangars to see if they've got one of the really big planes still there. Because when you see a big plane in the hangar, you go, wait a minute, how'd they get it here? And you realize they flew it in on very little fuel, and they're taking it off on very little fuel because of weight, but they can do it. Yes, there was a company called Tracor Aviation for a while at the far end of along Fairview Avenue. And they modified DC-10s and other jets for the hush, quiet engine things. And so they had to land those big jets here. And you're right. They took them in as light as they possibly could and took them off the same way. Exactly. They would take them off to another big airport, then fuel them over there. Yes. Exactly. For people who, in fact, either have never been here or who always come here, what's still their biggest surprise? I think how charming and quiet the town still is. And we've grown. There's over 100,000 people here. But still, you can motivate through the traffic and get beautiful, picturesque views of the ocean and the mountains. And that's one thing Santa Barbara has really stood for, is keeping low growth for the buildings, keeping the heights down and keeping the view corridors open. So the mountains are not blocked by high-rise buildings, except we have one. So we have one token high-rise building in town built in 1924. And that was it. And that was it. After that, they said, no more of this. So we do have, we do, and we have kept our corridors open for the beautiful views to the ocean and up to the mountains. And is it a requirement that everybody here has to have a bicycle? I just, I needed to know. <laughs> hey, Neil Graffy, stick with me for a second, because when we come back, I want to tell you a little bit about my history here with Ronald Reagan. Along in my automobile, my baby beside me at the wheel, cruising and playing the radio, with no particular place to go. We've been speaking with Neil Graffy, the author of about 85 different books, but I'll give him three. Uh, the Street Names of Santa Barbara, Historic Santa Barbara, and Santa Barbara Then and Now. Right before the break, I was saying to Neil that I wanted to go back to my experiences here when Reagan was president because I covered that presidency. And this has nothing to do with politics. When, when uh, George Bush Sr., was, was, Bush 41, was president, the press corps loved it because he'd summer in Maine. When Bush, George W., was president, the press corps hated it. Crawford, Texas. I mean, it was just painful. But you can't find a member of the White House press corps ever who never had a better time than they had right here when Reagan was president in Santa Barbara because he held very few press conferences, but they all had to be here. So they all got summer homes in Summerland or, or uh, Padero Lane or right in town. 
uh, the the, uh, the veteran White House correspondents did. They were the lucky ones. We got stuck at the Sheridan. Uh, you remember the Sheridan? The Sheridan for old timers, the Marmonte Hotel is what the Sheridan. And it's has not the Sheridan done. now, is it? No, it's changed again. I can't even keep track of the name changes. One of the things that we would delight in as locals is seeing the press conferences and the various uh, correspondents with their suits and ties on. And no, sh- and no pants. With bathing, yeah, bathing exactly. suits underneath and sandals. It the was deal was, classic. you're right, the deal in the White House press corps was, we shoot from the waist up. <laughs> Seriously. That yeah. started out in the in the Nixon administration with the, one of the CBS correspondents who would be playing tennis on the White House tennis court with Ron Ziegler trying to get an interview and then have to go live, basically just put a shirt and tie on. They just shot from the waist up. That's right. It's the beauty of the camera. But that was one of the most enjoyable presidencies to cover simply because of the location of the Western White House. And it's added to our history. And now that it's a museum up there, you can take trips up there and go up to the Western White House. Exactly. And by the way, when you take a look at West, uh, Rancho Cielo was yes, the name of it. Rancho del Cielo. Right, right. And it was small. It was tiny. And I remember when heads of state would visit the president and he invited them there, the Secret Service would like, oh, no, they'd cringe because the way to get there was over some, well, roads that were not exactly paved. And I remember you had motorcycle accidents and you had, of, the, of, the, of, the press, of the police entourage. Queen Elizabeth came by. I mean, it was crazy. It's a very narrow, windy road to get up there. But what a perfect place for him to relax and just be in pure seclusion. And I've talked to many of the guys that had worked up there with him and said, yes, he did chop his own wood. He did saddle his own horse. He did go out in the morning and do the things that he loved. And he didn't have a bunch of handlers getting the horse ready for him or starting the chainsaw. He knew his business. And, and that's he, what he loved. he had an old World War II Eisenhower Jeep up there. Yes. You remember that? And it was just, oh, ugly, but but weathered. That would be the... Uh, <laughs> Patina. Yeah. And you know what? It was part of the character. It worked right in. And it's down here just a few blocks from us, the um, Reagan Ranch. And I forget... Uh, I'm, I'm, I can't remember the name of the group that runs it. Boy, I'm in trouble for that. But they took the old Neil aptly named hotel, the Neil Hotel on Lower State Street. They regutted it, made it into the Reagan Ranch Welcoming Center, and they put that Jeep in there. They had to drop it through the roof when they put it in. <laughs> Not bad. Speaking of things that have changed, when I first came up here, I mean, there weren't that many hotels. It, wasn't, it was more residential than, than touristic, if you will. Today, you drive just a few blocks down Main Street, off Main Street, and every 30 feet, there's another wine tasting. Yes, wine has become a great part of our downtown history. And there's a little place called the Funk Zone down on Lower State Street and Anacapa Street, and that has a lot of wineries in there. Some people have said that this Funk Zone area is sort of like Isla Vista for grown-ups. Isla Vista being the college community where we all spent our youth and so now that we're a little bit older we have our still own place to go down in the funk zone there's artisans there's great pottery there's painting and there's wine tasting and then of course you've got the santa barbara film festival which gets bigger and bigger every year and that's still a delight because santa barbara has film history going back to 1912 for 1912 to about 1920 we had a silent film studio in here cranked out 1200 films and, you know, they came here because... Have they the been beauty. able to preserve those films? About 10% of them have been found. One of my, That's it. One of my friends, Dana Driscoll, has a film professor at UCSB, has been tracing these things down. And, you know, they're that old film... Silver nitrate. De- silver nitrate right, deteriorates. Yeah. And so a lot of them disintegrated, but he's been tracking them down in, you know, odd places because these movies went worldwide. So Santa Barbara is in a lot of silent movie pictures, and we... Where you know we could be medieval Europe, we could be Hawaii, and Santa Barbara filled in for any type of picture they wanted to make. Westerns, a lot of westerns made here. Yes. Yeah. What's interesting is you know just to give it a, a sense of place, you're only 90 minutes north of Los Angeles, so you are Hollywood North in that respect. Because if they're not making the films here, they're hanging out here. Yes, or we don't call it Hollywood North; we call the other place Santa Barbara South. Oh, God, don't do that either. <laughs> That'll start all sorts of problems. But everybody has their weekend homes up here now. So that you see a lot of people out here. Um, and, you know, I include Montecito in that because you got Oprah Winfrey hanging out here in, in a small little petite little pieterra. You know. Yes. Yeah. If you are sitting next to a small child or someone who is acting like a small child, please do us all a favor and put on your mask first. But I would walk by
My next guest knows a little bit about where we are in Santa Barbara. He's been uh, here for quite some time. Of course, like most Californians, he's not from California. He's one of those East Coasters like me from Connecticut. I'm from New York. Uh, his name is Garrett Kababnik. How are you, man? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Garrett, you run something called Channel Islands Outfitters, but really, if, if I'm coming to Santa Barbara, I want to go to you to go uh, either kayaking or stand-up paddleboarding. That's absolutely right. Or if you're interested in going out to the Channel Islands National Park. Yeah, well, let's talk about that because I'm a boater. I have a boat in Los Angeles, and you know, California is not known for great anchorages. California is not known for great coastal cruising because if I'm going to go north, I can take my boat, pull it into Santa Barbara Harbor. But if I want to go to see the Channel Islands, I better know what I'm doing because you better be on the leeward side big time. Well, actually, some of the best anchorages, in my opinion, are on the windward side. If you, uh, if you, as I said, if, if you, you know, know what you're, you're doing. doing. Yes. But there are lots of you know, nice little points that, that create these nice lees. Um, you know, some of the nice anchorages like Fry's. A uh, beautiful place to hook up for a well, couple of nights. Before we get to there, tell me how you get there. Well, boat travel. So you can take your own boat or you can use a ferry transportation through Island Packers, and they're the concessionaire with the National Park Service. So they actually they actually get go ashore? Yeah, they land. Uh, so they butt the, the bow of the boat up against a pier, so there's no... Because there's, there's no real dock. There's no docking, no. no. So they live board you or live unload you from the vessel as it's... So basically you're doing the MacArthur landing in the Philippines. <laughs> <laughs> Very much so, yeah. Right. You've got to wait ashore and declare this, de- declare this for Columbus. Exactly. They give you uh, the spear, you've got to go put it on the beach and claim it as yours. <laughs> but isn't there a, care- a caretaker on the island? It's the National Park Service. Yeah. So, yeah, there are National Park Rangers. They got the best job going because they get to stay there. They get to stay there. They have nice headquarters up in the canyons. Right. But, you know, you have to be a loner to do it. <laughs> I mean, right? There are a lot of people visiting the islands this time of the year. Yeah. Uh, so it's not very um, – there's not a lot of solitude in, in the summertime. But in the winter, when you're out there during a storm and you get isolated out there or stuck for the uh, duration of a storm, it's very, very much the isolation place. Yeah. It's called solitaire. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And more solitaire. Yes. How far do you go with the kayaks, though? We paddle around a section called the Scorpion Marine Reserve, and that's on the east side of Santa Cruz Island. And most of the tours we do are about three miles to five miles. And we really are focusing on the sea caves. There's uh, about 120 sea caves on the north side of Santa Cruz Island. In our area at the Scorpion Marine Reserve, there's about a dozen to 20 sea caves that are large enough in some cases where you could drive a small boat into. Um, And they're also just perfectly sized for are sit-on-top sea kayaks. Now, the one thing I have to caution everybody, and I, I, I learned this the hard way when I first came out to California in 1971, I couldn't wait to jump in the water. <laughs> it's cold! Not too bad right now. It's actually... Hello, it's cold. <laughs> it's, well, you know, there's no Gulf Stream current moving the warm water up in the summertime. So actually right now we have a little bit of a tropical current push, and there's the, a lot of talk of the El Nino this So you're winter. pushing 50, huh? We're pushing 70. Really? Yeah. That's unusual. It is unusual. It, it can get to surface temperatures over the 70s um, in the late summer on a regular basis. We had a really cold winter in, or summer in 2010 where it never got above 60 degrees the okay, entire and, okay. year. Okay, let's be honest now, Garrett. In, in a 12-month <laughs> period, how often are you not wearing the wetsuit? Five months. Really? Mm-hmm. That's because you're in another city? <laughs> <laughs> last, I remember last summer we had a, um, a good set of south swells coming through, and I was surfing from late August through October without a wetsuit. It was beautiful. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, if you take a look at the entire West Coast, including all the way up to Oregon, I mean, the, the coast is so amazing. You just have to respect the fact that the temperature is not going to be your friend. Absolutely. You should definitely dress for the water temperature, not the air temperature. What's the biggest surprise I'm going to find if I take your kayak tour? At the Channel Islands? Yeah. Sea caves. You're on a volcanic side of the island, and there's just tons of these littered. They're just littered inside the, the cliff walls. They're beautiful. The water... Actually, I'd say most people are surprised by the clarity of the water. And, and because it's yeah. volcanic, it is uh, sort of filtered, and there isn't a lot of sediment, so it doesn't get um, you know, cloudy when the storms come through. And people come out from Los Angeles and other places in the, in the country, and they're like, wow, there's like something below the surface of the water well, out here. if you're in Los Angeles and you have to deal with Santa Monica Bay, head up to Santa Barbara and get surprised. <laughs> and I was out on the water yesterday off of Santa Barbara, and the water is incredibly clear right now. Um, offshore, just uh, from Ledbetter Beach, I paddled out, and you okay, can now see tell about me 40, the truth. 50 feet. How many people show up there with their GoPros now? Everybody, everybody, right? Selfie sticks. It's yeah. a naval, it's a nautical selfie experience. <laughs> it is, yeah. Right, and how mm-hmm. many have you lost? Come on, I've never lost a GoPro. <laughs> how many have people lost? I've got no idea. I, I think more people lose their iPhones. 
Yeah, why you? Oh, because they're trying to take the picture of the iPhone. It goes right in the water. Yeah. Right. And there's more people coming, trying to go out there and paddle with their iPhones and take pictures and not realize that there's a potential of getting wet when it's you're called, kayaking. It's called multitasking that doesn't work. Yeah. Exactly. Garrett Bababic from the Channel Islands Outfitters, guys. I want to go out there with you. You should. Yeah. Absolutely. On second thoughts, let's not go to Camelot. It is a silly place. I've been everywhere, man. Across the desert, bare man. I breathe the mountain air, man. Travel I've had my share, man. I've been everywhere. I've been to Boston, Charleston, Dayton, Louisiana, Washington, Houston, Kingston, Texas, County, Monterey, Faraday, Santa Fe, Tallapoosa, Glen Rock, Black Rock, Little Rock, Oskaloosa, Tennessee, Tennessee, Chicopee, Spirit Lake, Grand Lake, Devil's Lake, Crater Lake, Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. At this time of the, of the show, I always encourage you to go to our website, petergreenberg.com, for another reason. That's our comprehensive list of all the aid and relief organizations doing all that essential work all around the world where you, too, can get up close and personal, get involved every time you travel. Uh, whether you're the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, it doesn't matter. There's an opportunity for you there to immerse yourself and help people along the way. It can be an hour, a couple of hours, an afternoon, even a day if you want. You can book in on any side of your trip. If you've got kids over the age of 12, guess what? They get to bring you, and it's a life-changing experience. We always like to localize all the volunteerism opportunities. And, of course, Santa Barbara's no exception. There's the Surfrider Foundation, the Santa Barbara chapter. They've been around for 25 years. This is an opportunity for you to really understand the ocean, the waves, the beach, get involved in preserving, conserving, cleanup, you name it. And what a great way to see Santa Barbara than right at the beach. Uh, you can find out more about what they're doing and how you get involved very simply by going to Santa Barbara at surfrider.org or go right to, to our website, petergreenberg.com. My next guest knows all about Santa Barbara, especially if you want to eat your way through it. She's the, she's the editor of Edible Santa Barbara magazine. Love that. I mean, is there any other way than, than to eat your way through Santa Barbara? I think that's a great way to discover Santa Barbara. Yeah. You know, I mean, the food. When I first came up here, and I, I'll be honest, I came up here in 1971, uh, there wasn't a whole lot to do uh, in terms of eating. Uh, there were your fast food chains. And if you came up the 101, there was the Big Yellow House. Yes, me- I remember which that. Is, which I, I saw the other day. It's closed, right? It's, just, it's, just, yeah, it's gone. But there's the Big Yellow House. And if you were lucky, you know, you'd go near the railroad tracks and find some places maybe on Santa Claus Lane. and, and, and or, or, right? But it's really evolved now. It's changed a great deal. And, you know, we've been publishing the magazine for about six years, and I've seen it change just in that amount of time. You, you know, know where I've seen the change? And, and, and please feel free to disagree. The Mexican food. Mm-hmm. I mean, right off State Street, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you have to go, go down a back alley, right? But I found this incredible Mexican place. I mean, I'm, I'm easy with Mexican. You know, give me a couple of quesadillas and guacamole. I'm a happy guy. This is truly world-class stuff. We have some great Mexican little trattorias, you know, just little great little spots that, you know, we love our Mexican food here. (laughs) But what's the surprise here? Because you can go to, look, when you deal with globalization, you can go to any city, any community, and you'll find, I mean, look, the best Italian food I ever had was in Lucerne, Switzerland. The best Chinese food I had was in Amman, Jordan. Who knew, right? So everybody's opening their ethnic cuisine in every major city and minor city in the world. So... I don't think. I mean, I'm sure we could probably find an Ethiopian place in Santa in Santa Barbara because everybody's here. Well, I don't. You know, we don't have Ethiopian yet. Oh, well, you see, we've yeah. created a need I know. now. We've created okay, a need. Okay, the secret's yeah. out. But you know, the the interesting thing about the Santa Barbara food scene, especially lately, is how much the chefs are really relying on the local ingredients. You know, the produce and the local food shopping at the farmers markets. Right. And they're they're taking you know maybe those ethnic. Um, cuisines and reinventing them with local ingredients. What I really appreciate, and I thought it was a stunt at first, I'll be honest, but what I really appreciate is when you open a menu at some of these restaurants, they not only tell you what the food is, they tell you where it came from. Exactly. They tell you the name of the farm and who grew it and what their favorite color is. You begin to understand the personality of the person who actually grew the tomato. Right, exactly. And I walk around the farmer's markets, which actually are located right below us and around the corner here, and I see chefs shopping at the market. In fact, I often go peek at what they're buying and see, oh, what are you going to do with that? 
Well, the key of all the key is always to follow the chef. Exactly. Right? And 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 the smarter chefs, not just in Santa Barbara but elsewhere, will operate in a way that for some of the regular customers, they'll let you go with them. And you go there in the markets early in the morning, especially the fish markets, you know, and and, mm-hmm. and you pick out what you're going to have for dinner that night. And it, it creates a whole new meaning for and, and an experience for the actual dining experience. Yeah, there are some tours that you can take here, you know, where you do walk around the farmer's market and uh, get to follow the chef around. That's a lot of fun. Um, or I suggest just walking around the farmer's market yourself. Even if you're going to be eating out, it's fun to pick up some of those fresh strawberries or snacks. You know, it's a great experience. Is there anything you can get here now that you couldn't get 10 years ago? Well, there are some crazy things that you can get here now that we couldn't get. Um, for instance, in the foothills of Goleta, they're growing coffee. You can actually get coffee that's grown in Goleta. Now, here's a question for you that and I, I don't really know the whole answer to it, but I was surprised when I heard part of the answer the other day. How many states in the United States grow coffee? The answer is not many. Hawaii. Maybe. Yeah, but now California in this one little spot. So... Um, you know, it's kind of a, a small, very specialty item that you can pick up at the farmer's market. But there's other things that are being grown here that's kind of unusual, like um, down in Carpinteria, they're growing papayas and some more tropical fruits that we never used to get here. So we're starting to see that on the menus. Is that a result of global warming? Well, possibly. <laughs> possibly, yeah. yeah. Enjoy the tropical, you know, things. Yeah. Who would you say are, are the three most creative chefs in town right now? Oh, my gosh. Um, There are a ton. Um, I think one that immediately pops to mind is um, a restaurant called Mesa Verde, which we just had a big dinner there. It's over on the Mesa, which is kind of a little residential area, and it's all plant-based. So everything on the menu is vegetarian or vegan, and it's very different. Let me ask you a question, because I've been to some of those restaurants, and I can't take the attitude. It's sort of like, would you like kale with everything? You know, no, no, I don't. I, just, how about some just string beans and some uh, like nice honey mustard sauce? Help me. You know, so, so is this vegan with no attitude, I hope? This is no attitude. In fact, it's really more Mediterranean. You know, that's, that's the way they present the food. Is it, it's just, you know, great food that happens not to have meat in it. You know. And I'm not a meat eater, so I'd be, I'd be there. You should be there. Absolutely. And, then and what happens if you're a pescatarian like me? Well, there's, you know, this is, you know, we're a harbor city here. We've got great seafood. Um, There's the Hungry Cat. They are specialized in seafood. Um, You can go to the Fisherman's Market right down at the harbor, you know, and shop for great fresh seafood. We have some of the best shrimp. Oh, my gosh. You know, our shrimp is amazing. Um, Halibut. There's just there's a ton of great food. And uni, if you're if you like urchin, this is the place to get it. No more abalone? There is. There's an abalone farm. Absolutely. Really? Yeah. So they're doing farmed abalone. It's right up the coast off of Goleta. See, my mom was, was born in Los Angeles. She's one of the few Los Angeles natives, the oldest of six, and her younger brothers would die for it. Absolutely. Yeah. Those are the days they did that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My dad actually was on an abalone dive boat in Santa Barbara in the early 60s. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, nowadays, it's farmed only. You can't, uh, you can't sell you know, wild abalone. All right, so we've dealt with the vegan crowd. We've dealt with the, the fish crowd. Okay. Okay, I've got to give, give homage to the, the steak eaters. Where do you go? Well, I mean, there's steak. Um, there's great steakhouses like Lucky's in Montecito. That's a classic. Um, Sly's in Carpinteria. I love it. Lucky's and Sly's. I know. Don't they kind of go together? And you know that the owner of Sly's used to be at Lucky's. So there's a little tie in there. Uh, but Sly's in Carpinteria, you can get the best steak in town. And not only that, but they also source beef from Watkins Ranch, which is a local uh, ranch that does grass-fed beef. So once again, farm-to-table even applies to the meat. Exactly. Which is not usually the case. Yeah, and there's some great um, pork available locally, um, pasture-raised pork um, in Santa Barbara County. So we're seeing a lot of that. And that's pork only raised on wine. Is that correct? Oh, well, not so much wine, but certainly (laughs) all those wonderful walnuts and little, you know, things they could forage, acorns. And And that's if you survive the funk zone, right? Because... Yes. Yeah. Oh, the funk zone. There's some fun food down there, you know? I mean, if you just want to grab a pizza or a bite to eat, um, you know, you can go to the Lucky Penny. You can... 
wander around the streets down there, and it's it's a really a fun place. You know what I do every time I come up here? I just find a place to park the car on a side street, and I just walk up and down state. Yeah. Because the, and, and the movie theaters are there, but also all these little mom and pops, little galleries. Mm-hmm. I bought some incredible stuff at galleries there. Well, and you should also venture off of state. You know, now Santa Barbara, like you mentioned, the funk. Well, if you zone. go off of state, yeah, that's off of state. That's yeah, not on off, state. Yeah. Off of state, right? Yeah. Because there's these little neighborhoods that have popped up. You know, where you actually get to, you know, explore. You know, the Presidio District near the old Presidio, and there's shops and coffee houses and great food. Some really great food. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. to talk about Napa or Monterey, um, but most people, when they start talking about wine in Santa Barbara, you can't go that far back. I mean, we're talking maybe 1968 and, and, and some of the real pioneers. When you, when, now, when you think about that, 1968 is only about 47 years ago, so that is a very young situation. And my next guest, talk about young, she started her winery in 1998. Uh, with her husband, and of course, like most Californians, she's not from here. She's a Chicago girl, I believe, right? That's right. Megan Cunin of Cunin Wines. How are you? Very good. So, I mean, it was it was such a a, a leap of faith, if you will, to, to say, okay, I'm going to like leave Chicago. I mean, I know about the lifestyle of Santa Barbara; that's attractive very much in and of itself. But to say, okay, I'm going to go start a winery with my husband in a place that's really sort of like embryonic. Well, I think that was the opportunity. I actually was in the wine business in Chicago when my when I met my husband, who'd already started the winery, and I followed him out here because it's just, it's just an amazing place to make wine. And part of the attraction is that it is embryonic. There's so many possibilities. It's really a paradise for for a boutique winemaker. There's just such a diversity of grapes. It's very you know, uh, homegrown, if you will. It's really a, a wine region for winemakers. And you guys all know each other. And we all know each other, and it's friendly. It's not like you don't get that feeling of Napa and Sonoma where you – Sonoma's pretty earthy, but Napa certainly where you go there and everything's built for tourists and everyone's behind a, an estate wall or a fortress here. It's very – you go into the valley and the restaurants you eat at or the things that you see are are there for ranchers and Winemakers. Well, what's interesting to me, and I was I come up here all the time, and, and I was up here about a month ago and driving around. I had no plans. I had no agenda. And I'm just driving down one of the streets off State Street, and every 30 feet, there's a, there's a tasting area. Yeah. I mean, the funk zone, right? It's, it's, the funk zone of Santa Barbara, absolutely. Explain that, please. Well, you know, Santa Barbara is pretty put together. It's pretty straight-laced. And the funk zone was always a place where there was room for artists, people who are shaping surfboards, you know, industry like fish canning. And so it was funky by comparison to the rest of Santa Barbara. And, you know, Pierre Lafond was really, I think, the first pioneer down there. He opened his urban winery in 1962, but nobody followed him till I think, 2005. Yeah. That was Oriana. And we opened our doors in 2008. And very soon after, there just started to be this, the winds of change. And now, you know, whereas in Santa Barbara, there, I think there were 10 urban wineries then. I think there are, there will be 30 by the end of the year. And we're not talking huge production, are we? No. You know, like I said, Santa Barbara is a paradise for boutique winemakers. Because you're doing what, like 5,000 cases a year? 5,000 cases a year. But handmade by us. Artisanal. It's artisanal. <laughs> we really care about everything that we we put in the bottle. We're okay. With all due respect to the movie Sideways and Merlot, is Merlot getting a, is coming back at all? Absolutely. Really? Absolutely. You know, Sideways put Pinot on the map here, um, and that was so important for Santa Barbara. But the bottom line is, like, the, it's unparalleled. The diverse, you know, in the United States, the diversity of grapes you can grow and grow well in the county, and Merlot is one of them. Happy Canyon is really a great place for Bordeaux varieties. Cabernet Franc, Merlot, Cabernet. Because of the weather, too. Because of the weather. Because a unique microclimate just in that 
you know, area of Santa Barbara. The county is only 29 miles long. But yeah, people little, don't realize that. It's yeah, tiny. It's tiny. But that little corner is great for Bordeaux varieties. Is there a kind of wine here you won't make? Absolutely not. In fact, we have a, a project right now called the Valley Project, and our tagline is serving you uh, a tour of Santa Barbara one glass at a time. And what we're trying to do there is make incredible wines from all the different varieties that you can make in Santa Barbara. So we're making, you know, Pinot Blanc, Gruner Veltliner, Cabernet Franc, as well as, you know, really excellent Pinot and Chardonnay, but just in 100, 120 case lots. And that's it. And that's it. But for us, it's, you know, it's an exploration of the county by making wine there. If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. I am a passenger. My next guest, I know this is a surprise now, she's actually from Santa Barbara. Everybody else who's been on the show so far today is from Connecticut, they're from Chicago. She's actually born and raised here. And how appropriate, because the story that we're about to tell you is about a location that started here in the 1940s uh, from a woman who just was a well-known Polish opera singer and socialite who purchased an estate and turned it into this horticultural wonderland uh, which now has the name of Lotus Land, um, and when she died, turned it into an opportunity for people to maintain it and open it up to the public. And joining me now is Crystal Wyatt, who's, who's the vice president of the board of the, is it the Ganawalska Lotus Land? Yes. That, that's the name of the woman who, who did it. Right? Absolutely, Peter. I mean, what was her passion? She had many passions. Um, she originally was passionate about opera, was passionate about men. She was married six times. And following, and here we go, Lotus Land. I love the name now. Absolutely, her sixth and final husband found the property, which <laughs> became her final passion, which was horticulture. I love that. I, I love his title. I'm the sixth and final husband. I love that. Yeah. Yes. But then they opened it up. They didn't really open it up, did they? Until later on. So Madame Walska never had children, and in her life, she planned to give the property to the public as a public garden after she passed, and she passed away in 1984. And so for, what, for 31 years now, it's been part of a public trust. Yes. They, there's a private foundation that runs the property. How many acres are we talking about? How many different kind of plants? 37 acres. Gosh. 37 thousands. acres in Santa Barbara County. Unreal. In the heart of Montecito, yeah. in the middle of estates. Wow. You couldn't afford that land today. No, you could not. And how many it's priceless. It is. And how many, kind of, how many different varieties? There are many thousands of plants. I think we have upwards of... 3,500 species. Now, you started there as a volunteer. Yes. What got you interested in it? I took a public tour um, at the insistence of my in-laws, who, who know that I have a love of biology. So they sent me on a public tour. and I was so mystified and amazed. I became a member so I could go back and take a private tour by myself. Yeah, you just wanted the, you wanted the, you wanted the benefits. I loved it. Um, and I couldn't quite get enough. So in the middle of working, I took leave no pay to become a docent and give public tours. And is it open every day of the week? No, it's open Wednesday through Saturday. There are two public tour times in the morning, and in, one in the morning and one in the afternoon. And is there a charge for it? Yes, it's $45 per person. And you can't steal any of the plants? You cannot. <laughs> Your docent will keep an eye on you and make sure you don't touch anything you're not supposed to touch. But and this is not just an array of plants. These are truly wonderful public gardens. It's an incredible public garden that's unique in the planting style. Madame Walska loved mass plantings of individual types of plants. So, Did she know anything about it or did she just come upon it naturally? You know, I, mean, I believe she came upon it naturally. She was very dramatic and eccentric. And when she discovered plants she liked, instead of buying one or two, she'd buy one or 200, and plant them in clusters. What's the most, un I know this is a difficult question, what's the most unusual plant you've got there? Our cycad collection is one of the top collections of this type of plant in okay, the world. Okay, explain that. Okay, cycads are prehistoric plants that were contemporary. See, cycads, when I went to college, were guys who needed a lot of supervision. <laughs> <laughs> well, these plants require some supervision. They are very, um, many of them were threatened and endangered in the wild from habitat loss. 
So we have one of the most complete collections of cycads. They look a lot like palm trees, but they're cone-bearing. Well, and how tall are they? It varies. They're, there's such a difference in the type of cycads. So we have the three largest we have are Encephalardus woodii. And they are... I knew that. Yeah. <laughs> They're clones from one plant found in South Africa. Um, cycads are interesting in that they are male and female. But don't you have to be careful uh, in introducing a certain species that might not be native to California? That is, that's an interesting question. Um, many of these plants have been here for decades, and we have an exceptional plant care and curatorial staff. So they... They're in charge of making those decisions. All right, so here's the other side of that question. Is there a plant you've always wanted that you couldn't get, or is there a plant you tried to grow there that just is dead on arrival? That's an excellent question. That's why I'm here. You see, good and excellent questions. You're so good at this. Um, There are many plants that are too tropical, and so they are grown in greenhouses. If they're, you know, if they're significant to the botanical world and we want to grow them, they're probably grown in, in certain conditions that are specific. Are you finding a younger age group now starting to come in to, to actually appreciate these gardens? Well, actually, one of the amazing programs we have is an outreach program where docents go to fourth grade classrooms and teach kids about photosynthesis and pollinators and prepare them for their visit to Lotus Land. And Lotus Land provides the resources to bring these kids to the garden. So, I love it. You don't just take the tour. You get prepped. Absolutely. You know what? I wish more people would have done that because I would have actually, in, in all honesty, appreciated it more because you have at least an idea of what you're about to see. Well, it, the education aspect of Lotus Land is one of the things that I'm passionate about. And to show these young people a, a broad diversity of plants that they may never see in their lifetime out in the natural world and teach them about why they're important. The website? www.lotusland.org. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get gig speeds powered by fiber from Cox. It's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Download speeds up to one gigabit per second. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.